2: Hi, it's Glenn James. This message is being played at the start of all podcasts that Simo Interactive produces. It has come to my attention that there was a licensing issue with the music that we were using for our shows. And until that issue is resolved, and it might take a couple of weeks because I'm overseas at the moment, I've just decided out of an abundance of caution, I would stop using any music until we've resolved the issue. So if you are new to the podcast, you probably won't notice anything different. If it's not your first time, this is why there is no music
0: in the episodes at this time. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the episode.
2: Hi, everyone, and welcome to My Millennial Money Professional. My name's Dev Raga, and I'm your host. And in this episode, we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Tony Chen, who I'm just meeting for the first time online, but we've been chatting for a while on Facebook because Tony actually runs a Facebook group, which I'm part of. And in this episode, hopefully it'll be an interesting episode to talk about Tony, his career, his views on investing, but also Tony is an avid traveler, so and that's how I know him from online through his Facebook group, and I really want to get his thoughts on some of the travel tips and hacks that perhaps he can teach all of us. So Tony, welcome aboard, and are you ready to get started?
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. All right,
2: let's get started. Now, if you have any questions or comments, uh, the best way to contact me would be via Twitter or via Facebook, and remember, the three main aims of the channel are... Education, empowerment, and entertainment. So, Tony, we, we've sort of spoken online quite a few times, you know, and this is actually the first time I get to meet you kind of in person. So, thanks very much for your time. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do? Because, as far as I'm aware from online, you're a consultant radiologist. And for listeners that are non medical, uh, a radiologist is the Doctor that actually looks at your scans and reports on those scans, as opposed to the radiographer, who's actually the person who's a technician that does the scans. So, Tony, just give us a bit of an intro about about your life and who you are.
1: Yeah, thanks, Dev. Um, thanks for having me on the show. Um, I'm an avid listener of your show, so it's uh, quite an honour to be here. Um, I hope you can hear me okay. So, my name is Tony. Tony Chen. On the internet, um, I have a mild alias called Tony Gibbs, or sometimes Tony Gibbs Chen. Uh, a funny story is um, when my wife first got married seven years ago, we uh, decided that we were probably going to change, well, she's going to take my Chinese name. And we don't really have that sort of history in Chinese culture where the wife takes the man's name. So I said, why don't we just take each other's names?" So then I changed off Facebook to Tony Gibbs, which is her last name. Um, but Facebook has this thing where if you change your last name too many times, they ban you from changing it any further. So i forever have forever known as Tony Gibbs on uh, Facebook. So that's why lots of people know me as Tony Gibbs. But my real name is Tony Chen. Um, so I'm 37 years old. I am, as you said, a radiologist. Um, I'm also dual trained as a nuclear medicine physician. So a radiologist, uh, like you described, is a doctor that looks at images. So I've got x-rays, CTs, MRIs those kind of things, and a nuclear medicine physician expand on that. So I look at nuclear medicine scans, PET scans. We also do a little bit of therapy with radio radio activities. Um, At home, I have a wife and two young kids, a two- and a five-year-old, who keep me very busy and sleep-deprived. We're all sleep-deprived. I moved to Geelong three years ago on the first day of lockdown, so that was fun. And uh, before that, I lived in Melbourne, and uh, did high school and university in Melbourne and training in Melbourne as well. I was born in China and moved out of China when I was 10. Uh, first to New Zealand. I will you know expand on that a bit later in the show. And then subsequently moved to Australia when I was 15. So I did majority of my uh, high schooling and subsequent years in Australia.
2: Right. Well, that's, that's quite the intro. And, and what's interesting about this episode is that um, a lot of my listeners are actually followers of Tony's Facebook group which is actually called frequent flying doctors so you need to be APRA registered to be part of that um, part of that group so lots and lots of listeners will be very very excited to have Tony on this show and of course the disclosure is I follow Tony's Facebook group as well so it's it's a fascinating group and basically it's about you know uh, tips and tips and travel hacks predominantly aimed at medical professionals so I'm just wondering radiology as a career? Now, the thing about um, radiology for me that that really sticks out during my training is that I I trained originally at the RMH, uh, Royal Melbourne Hospital, then uh, I went to Monash Health, which was previously called Southern Health. And as a junior doctor, we had to go and beg the radiologist for scans, particularly uh, during surgical rotations. I'm just curious, why did you choose radiology as a career? And when interns and residents and even registrars come to you now, uh, are you mainly in the public system and do you deal with them and do you give them a lot of grief? Because I, I, I got given a lot of grief
1: by radiology consultants back in the day. Um, I didn't want to be a doctor. I wanted to be an architect. But being Asian parents, I guess the choice was either doing medicine or medicine. Um, <laughs> so I was a little bit limited there. I had a friend who was Asian as well, and then he got into law, and then his grandparents asked him what kind of doctor that is. So we, we were, I mean, I'm sure you know as well, being, you know, immigrant Asian background, you, you're somewhat expected to do medicine if you, you know, if you will get that score. Then architecture, I actually met some architects, and honestly, a little bit turned off because they weren't doing so well after 10, 20 years later in the career, there were some really great architects that were doing amazingly, but the vast majority of them were kind of struggling. So I decided to pivot, and I decided to do law. And when I started at Melbourne Uni, I actually started doing med law as a double degree, which is a pretty stupid um, double degree, if you think about it. I dropped the law part pretty quickly, had it look at the torts law textbook. It was horrendous. It's just a giant brick or a book filled <laughs> with font ten words, and i 'm not so good with words to be honest, so um, I'm more you know I want to be an architect. I like pictures and drawing things and you know looking at colorful things, so law was the exact opposite of what I wanted, so dropped that pretty quickly after two weeks, and then you know kept on with medicine so with med school, I think a big proportion of doctor maybe i'm generalizing here, but I thought as a male doctor. Going to surgery was kind of the expected thing. And that's kind of also from my Asian family background where, you know, if you're a man, you go and do surgery. Not you know, this is kind of an old school kind of thinking, but this parts of surgery are still very boys club and I think remains that way. That definitely has lots of issues like that at the moment. Um, so I did surgery for a little bit. I was unaccredited registrar, but there was lots of issues with surgery, despite the fact I really enjoyed it. were was very good my hands. I loved the people I was working with, and I had some really good mentors. Um, the issues were hours, you know, as you know, it was long. Essentially, with any job, you end up doing the few bread-and-butter surgeries in the end. You know, lots of, if you don't get a surgery, you're doing a lot of hernia repairs and so on and so forth. And I think in the end, the lifestyle just didn't quite fit, and I wanted something that had more variety and a bit more interesting, And as you know, a lot of your life decisions are based on the people you meet. So some of my good surgical mentors, they were quite blunt. They pretty much said, if you are not in it 100% and if you don't want to put in the hours, it's probably best to do radiology. It's still got lots of anatomy, you still do procedures, um, but you do keep your on hours. And they weren't saying this to put me off surgery. Um, They just saw radiology as a great alternative career. And... I think one event really stuck with me. Is one of my mentors had to delay his once-a-year European holiday that he was so looking forward to because one of his private patients had a complication of some sort and he had to stay behind for another two weeks, so he lost half of his holiday. And that's something, I mean, as you know, I, I love my holidays. That's something I never wanted to, uh, to, you know, that's not something I was prepared to do. Um, for Obviously, for people who love surgery, I, I think I really enjoyed my time there. Um, but the you know other other aspects of surgery I really struggled with. So towards the end of medical school, I met a radiologist um, who works at um, Royal Melbourne Hospital. He runs uh, he started a website called Radiopedia. I'm not sure if you're aware of it. It's one of the biggest medical websites. And yeah, back then he was showing me this dingy little website. I thought this was terrible. I don't, no one's going to look at this. And now it's now it's amazing. And uh, he was doing tutes for us, and he was trying to get everyone involved. He said everyone should be a radiologist. It was amazing. And out of that cohort, I was the only one that did it. So he had a big impact on me. And uh, so that's was, that was Frank Gaylord, by the way. So um, shout out to him. Um, I don't think he remembers me anymore. But that's, you know, the people you meet really kind of decide who kind of decide, push you on the path that you end up in. So radiology was great. Did my training at the Western Hospital, which is in Footscray. Training was surprisingly tough, not because of the hours. Radiology always has good hours, but you kind of need to know a bit of everything. So you never really know when you've known enough, and I'm sure most most specialties are like that. Uh, so finished training, did two more years of nuclear medicine as a subspecialty, and when I finished, I uh, went straight to private. Now, the reason for that is public is difficult getting to, and also private had more flexibility with, for my lifestyle, and we'll talk about that a little bit as well. So, in terms of how I treat people, registrars or people come and refer to us, uh, as a registrar, even in the public system, I, I don't like to say no. I'm, I'm, I'm generally a pretty, I'm a people pleaser, trying not to say no to things. But you do get some pretty dodgy referrals. And as you know, if you're an intern or resident, often you don't even know why you're referring the thing you're referring. And you don't know. I mean, what is a four-phase CT for the pancreas or, or for the liver? Or, you know, why are you doing this extra phase for their brain? You have no idea. You just do it because your registrar or consultant is asking you to. And the reason we give... Well, it's not trying to give you a hard time. But for me, I personally like to educate why we're doing these things and also push the test onto the correct path because we, especially in the public system, is a limited resource. You don't want to be doing extra 20-minute scans for no reason. And the vast majority of radiology does involve radiation. So you want to do the right thing for the patient. You want to make sure you don't harm the patient. You want to make sure, you, make sure you, don't, you, know, you don't waste time and resource. And also for me, it was an educational process for the junior doctors So I generally didn't say no. And if I did, I would explain why it was incorrect or offer an alternative. Some of the other radiologists were a bit rough. But radiology is a stressful job in the sense that there's always scans to be reported. There's always a backlog. So you never feel like finishing a list. So unlike surgery, you finish your list, you go home or... You know, outpatients, yes, it's stressful, you finish, you go home. Radiology is non-ending, so you could be reporting forever if you want to. So it's a different kind of stress.
2: Right. That's, that's, an, that's a fascinating story about your journey into radiology. And uh, I'll sort of touch on a couple of topics. Uh, surgery very much is, is, you know, changing for the better, I think, in terms of gender equality and gender equity. If, if I'm not mistaken, the president of the Victorian AMA is actually – a female consultant surgeon, which is great. So, uh, but but you're right. I mean, you know, 10, 20 years ago, it was very much uh, male dominated, um, particularly within certain specialties within surgery, but it's nice to have that sort of diversity. So that's good. And there's a real sort of interlinkages between surgery and radiology. I mean, you, you touched on it and that is the anatomy. I mean, uh, as a radiologist, you would really need to know your anatomy of the entire human body um, as opposed to if you're an orthopedic surgeon, for example, you don't really need to know cardiovascular anatomy. You don't really need to know intraabdominal anatomy. You don't really need to know pelvic anatomy, whereas as a radiologist, you know, one minute you're looking at chest X-rays and the next minute you'll be looking at CT brains and the next minute uh, you've got a scan for a CT abdo pelvis. And for, for people that don't know in terms of the intricacies of... What a radiologist does. Sometimes a radiologist also, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Tony, protocolizes a scan. So, for example, one of the reasons when you do a ward round and people say, "Oh, just just get a CT abdo pelvis" or something like that, well, a CT ab- abdo pelvis can be CT liver, pancreas, can be bowel, um, and you need to protocolize it. So, when the intern or resident, if you're listening in on this, you need to go and sort of actually say why you want to do the CT. And Tony's right. A lot of the time, the consultants just say, just get a CT. And you kind of almost like want to say, why? Why are we doing the CT for? But we never really get told that as junior doctors. You just Your job is if your consultant tells you to jump, you kind of have to jump. So that was the sort of, I, I always wanted to say, why are we doing these CT scans? I don't really know why, but now I've got to go and justify to a radiology consultant or registrar while we doing it. So it's, it's, it's an interesting, and, and you did mention about private. So I want to touch on that for people that don't know, what are some of the disadvantages of radiology as a career? You did mention some of the advantages. Uh, and also, what are some of the pros and cons of maybe going to private, for example, because a lot of the public will be thinking, oh, you know, become a doctor, just work in the private and earn loads of money. But I assume for radiology, it
1: may not be that simple. So I actually had a list of things that were, uh, I want to just expand a bit more on the advantages of radiology. And for your junior doctors or anyone thinking about radiology, I'm a big advocate of radiology. So if anyone who's interested in career, there's lots of things going for it. And I personally think it's the best job in the world, medical or non-medical. Um, So I'm lucky in that sense that I actually have a job that I think is fantastic. Uh, So I think the best thing with radiology, as I mentioned earlier, is it is very flexible. And that is unusual for a medical job. It is unusual for any job to be that flexible. So we're talking about flexibility, not only in the hours that you work, but also the location. So... For the vast majority of radiologists, most people don't work five days. So for a public hospital doctor, a full-time job is four days. So four days at 10 hours each day. For private, uh, it is five days. It's five days at eight hours generally, but most people don't do five days. Most people do four, three, or two. And there is a big percentage of doctors that work both in private and public. So you've got that flexibility in location and flexibility in hours. And because everything is done on the computer, or at least the reporting portion of it is, you can work at home, you can work on your beach house, you can go work on the other side of the world. So there's people who go on sabbaticals to, let's say, London, and they report for Australia overnight. They're still earning that Australian money, but they're you know, living on the other side of the world. So that is a um, great advantage. Not, not a common thing that people do. It is something that is possible. So that flexibility generally just do not get... With other jobs, and sometimes I do a little bit of telereporting. I want a bit of extra pocket money, or just for a bit of fun, I just do some reporting for other hospitals around the country, and I can do that on the weekend. I do a couple hours here and there, just make you know a bit of extra money if I if I want to. Um, second part of radiology that's so great is you leave work at work uh, mostly. So although there is unlimited amount of work to be done, when you finish, and they say you clock up clock off at six o'clock you generally leave your work at work. There's no patients that's contacting you and no one's really gonna be calling you unless you're on call because the work you do is isolated. Each case is itself and you don't have your own patients. You're mainly referred a patient. And that's something I, I wanna sort of touch on where a lot of radiologists see themselves as a, you know, just a worker or a lot of other people see radiologists as just someone who puts some words on a piece of paper Um, I see myself still at fourth, first and foremost as a specialist. So when you refer to me, it's like referring to any other specialist, you're referring to me for an opinion. And that opinion just happens to be on a image. And if you give me lots of enough information on the referrer, then I can give you a better answer back, just like if you're referring to any other specialist. Um, The issue is I don't see the patient directly. I don't have them in front of me. So it makes it sometimes quite hard, so I'm doing a lot of guesswork. And for, uh, let's say, PET scans and nuclear medicine scans, where a lot of it is physiological and they're quite big, complex scans, I treat myself as a member of the team and I discuss cases with referrers. Sometimes I call the patient and ask for symptoms. Sometimes I go and examine the patients. So I do consider myself a doctor first and foremost. So And that that is why radiologists won't lose their jobs because artificial intelligence is coming in and that is one of the things that we are all concerned about. And I'll talk about that as one of the cons in a moment. So another thing that's great is there's a combination of diagnostic medicine, obviously, because we're diagnosing cases on the images, but there's also a lot of procedures. So one day a week for me, and I'm not even a procedure radiologist, but I love doing procedures to an extent. If I do lots of procedures. We're doing injections um, for MSK, shoulder, knees, spines, you know, we're doing steroids, bloods, PRP injections, these kind of things. And uh, another two days I do nuclear medicine. I also do cardiac stress imaging. So that involves taking history, you know, examining the chest, doing doctorly things that most people don't think are related to radiology. Honestly, most radiologists haven't touched a stethoscope in 20 years, but I I still do. I listen to the chest and I read the ECGs. So that's something I still enjoy. So radiology do give you that variety and combination of diagnostic procedures. And there's uh, ample patient contact, which I was really surprised with when I first started. And I think for a lot of people, if you don't want to work with people, you don't really dislike people, which is fine. You don't have to... Work with people, and some people hate patients, and that's why they wanted to do radiology. You can do that; you just lock yourself at home and do your telereporting. Um, there's others who love working with people. I, I'm, I do like, you know, seeing patients and you know hanging out at hospitals and talk to the nurses and the techs. So that is something very enjoyable for me. So interesting enough, I actually see more people now as a radiologist than I did as a surgeon, or as a surgical registrar. I definitely know, do more procedures per day, I can do 30 plus procedures per day, which obviously you cannot do as a surgeon. So that's something that surprised me with the amount of patient and human contact has increased since I did radiology. So in terms of the disadvantages, I think one major issue that's coming up is artificial intelligence. And that is going to impact a lot of people um, in the medical and non-medical field. And for medicine, I think pathology and radiology are going to be the two big ones because you know, we're just pattern recognition. And for simple things, such as an x-ray, a fracture is not going to be that hard to miss by a computer. You don't even need artificial intelligence. The tricky part is, one, how much can you trust the computer before we can completely take over? And I think the answer is it needs to be almost 100%. And the second part is the legislations. What What is the government happy to legislate? I think for private companies, they want to use as little radiologists as possible or increase throughput as much as possible because radiologists is the most expensive component of their business. But from a patient care point of view, you still want that radiologist, you want that human to be double-checking to, to know that there is a person on the other side actually looking at this. And if there's is any issues... As I said, I am still a doctor first and foremost, and I am discussing the case with the other specialist, whether it's MDT or just through a phone call. So still acting as a doctor as an interim. So I think AI will definitely change, a, you know, change the whole process, and the scope of practice will change. It will most likely increase the number of cases we do, but I suspect it will make things more efficient. It would likely reduce errors, but I don't think it's going to replace radiologists altogether. You need that person in the end and you need the, it's almost the art of medicine that the computer just cannot provide.
2: So I suspect with AI, there's, a, there's potentially an application for screening scans, right? Like mammograms, scans that you do on a screening basis where vast majority are going to be normal. And like you said, it's pattern recognition. Or do you think AI is going to be more prevalent for diagnostics, which, you know, for for the hospital patients? Or do you think AI is more for community patients for screening programs initially anyway? And of course, there's always going to be the legislative
1: barriers. Um, So at my clinic, we already have uh, artificial intelligence. I think artificial intelligence is rolled out in most clinics. So it's already here. Uh, In terms of quality, the vast majority of the stuff I've seen are no better than, at best, a first-year registrar. So probably closer to an internal or medical student. But um, what a computer is very good at is seeing things that either we were too tired or we just missed. But once we do see it, it's obvious. So that's the good screening, as you said. So that's great for screening because we are not infallible, as you know. Um, but in terms of making the difficult decisions and making the tricky diagnosis, I think at the moment you still need that human, um, you need that wealth of knowledge and the art of medicine, and the art of radiology to make a... You know, With a computer, it's sometimes quite easy to just say, here are the top 10 differentials. You know, As as you know, when you're a junior doctor or a medical student, a senior doctor asks you, what do you think this is? And often you can just list off five, 10 differentials because that's what you memorised... On a textbook. But in reality, there is that you're seeing enough patients, you can't just get the vibe. (laughs) You just know. So that is going to be something that's going to be tricky to impart to a computer. I'm sure it's going to be possible eventually. But at the moment, I think it's definitely more for screening, it's more of an aid rather than something that we can rely on. Mm, Interesting. Um, Just pivoting a little bit about.
2: Um, you know we 've talked about your career and your selection as radiology as your specialty. I have read some of the posts that you 've done online about your childhood. You had a pretty uh, from what i 've read you have you 've had a pretty tough childhood in terms of finances you you didn't you didn 't grow up with very much so if you feel comfortable just to get a bit of a background about who Tony is and where you are at the moment compared to where you were as a child, can you give us a bit of a you know bit of a round down about what childhood for you was like, perhaps, you know, when you came to
1: Australia as a, as a first-generation immigrant. So for people that know me now, I think it's going to be very surprising to what, kind of my, what my life was like when I was growing up. Um, I think that's going to be a common theme for many first-generation immigrants, where the life you had as a child is very different to the life you have now, um, either through circumstance or hard work, or whatever else. So when I was a child, I grew up in the late 80s, early 90s in uh, China and in a city called Tianjin. Tianjin is the fourth biggest city in China, but I bet you've not heard of it. It'll be you if you have. It's like the Adelaide of China. It's a big city, but it's just not well known outside of China. It's the port city of Beijing. So it's right next to Beijing. Um, Despite the fact it's the fourth largest and no one's heard of it, it's got approximately 15 million people. So it's, you know, it'd be Melbourne, Brisbane, Sydney pushed together into an area that'd be smaller than, you know, smaller than Adelaide. Uh, So I grew up in that town, well, city, and the lifestyle and the, the way of life in China in the late 80s and early 90s compared to the West, such as Melbourne, is night and day. You're... Right now, it's if you go to China, it feels very Western, modern. People are living in nice apartments. People drive cars. It wasn't like that in China. I mean, I lived in a communist apartment block. Um, it's an it, where everywhere you walked, everyone lived in exactly the same block. It's six stories tall, and it's like a U shape, horseshoe shape. There's an opening on one end, and the buildings wrap around a central courtyard. And it's actually quite a nice design. The central courtyard has, you know, a little bit of grass, a lot of um, paving, and in the evenings, especially when it's warm, all the kids come out and play. We, everyone knew everyone. All the older people sat around and chatted. It's got a quite a community feel that I feel like in Australia we just don't have. Everyone sort of in their own little apartment, in their own little houses. Well, when I was growing up in China, it felt very communal. I remember when I was a kid, when when it was warm. Um, A big truck would come with an enormous pile, a mountain of watermelons, and uh, it would just literally back into the courtyard, central courtyard, and dump it all in the center of the courtyard. And as a kid, I just remember this mountain of watermelons, you know, multi-stories tall. It's probably just, you know, not that many, probably 50 watermelons, but in my memory, it was thousands of watermelons, and then everyone from the apartment we will get down to the courtyard and grab a little stool and then we will demolish the watermelons on a hot day. It was some of the best memories of my life. And the entire courtyard will be pink from watermelon juice. So that's kind of the memories I had was, you know, it was poor, like everyone was poor, but it felt communal and I was happy. Um, I was happy in that sense where the living conditions were small and tough, but I felt I was living with people. So my dad visited Melbourne when I was six as on a business trip and he was blown away. Uh, he was blown away just with, he showed me a photo of an escalator that was flat. <laughs> I've never seen anything in my life and I was just like, they're living the future. And after that, he, that was his dream. His dream was to move to Melbourne, come to Australia and have a better life for the family. Um, at the time, we didn't have enough immigration points, and for people who don't know, if you're an immigrant, um, to get to certain countries, there are these points you got to hit. So um, if you're educated or if you're a certain uh, specialist, you get a certain amount of points. If you're rich and you investing in Australia, you get another amount of points, and your age, and obviously relationships would all determine those points. We didn't have enough immigration points to get to Australia, so we had to go to New Zealand first. Now... We moved to New Zealand in the eve of 1995, just before Christmas. And I have very fond memories of moving to Auckland during Christmas time because that was something I've never experienced before, all the lights and Christmas trees. Um, My parents saved up a lot of money in China in the late 80s, early 90s. But a lot of money from a Chinese perspective is pittance in New Zealand. So it didn't take long to go through all of that. My dad's job paid very little. I mean, it was slightly better than minimum wage. Oh, actually, potentially it could have been minimum wage. I have no idea. Um, my mom was a marine biologist and taught at a u- university in China, but she didn't speak any English. So she really struggled, both socially and you know, economically and with her job. So there was a lack of social support for my mum, obviously, my dad and myself. None of us had friends. I didn't speak English. My mum didn't speak English. It was a tough time for my parents. And in hindsight, it was quite brave because, you know, they, they were approaching 40 at that time with no support going to a country that they didn't speak the English of just because a few years ago he went to Melbourne and thought that was going to be, uh, you know, more opportunity for, for me. So the five years I was in New Zealand was pretty rough. Um, I subsequently moved to Melbourne after the five years. But during those five years, it was a tough time. My dad worked two to three jobs. Um, He had his day job at an office, even though it was was, a minimum wage, it was still an office job. And then he, he was a cleaner at a church and he was a trolley boy, either on weekends or in the evenings. Some years, I think one of the years, we lived in a share house with a bunch of other new immigrants. It was a tiny, tiny room in a four-bedroom falling down um, the house. I think it was probably no more than 20 square metres. And another year, we lived in a garage. They had no window. We were just too poor to afford a proper, proper rental. And we all just slept in one double bed, squeezed in, or sometimes I'll sleep on the bed with my mum, and my dad will sleep on the ground. And at the time, I didn't think there was anything unusual about this. This is just life. And in hindsight, you know, I really see that we were struggling. Uh, we ate 99 cents bread all the time. There wasn't a lot of variety in our diet. There was a lot of cheap veggies, which was good. But we never spent more than a cent than what we needed. And we never spent anything other than basic food. Uh, there was this very vivid memory, I think this was in uh, sorry, 1997, when my mum bought me a $3 Big Mac, and Big Macs were $3 back then, two ninety-five, I think, um, as a treat. I think she was in a good mood that day, um, but I felt so bad. Uh, for starters, she didn't really speak English. So I went in with my mum and I was quite embarrassed and then sad to watch her struggle at the Counter to trying to order a Big Mac for me. And $3 back then to us was a big deal. That was a big part of our budget for food. And I felt bad that my mum was struggling to even order the food. And then, you know, that amount of money was important to us. So I didn't really enjoy it. That memory kind of scarred me almost. And I never asked for treats or takeaways or eating out ever again. From that point onwards, I didn't eat out until I had my own job So when I became a doctor. So that was, you know, over a decade later. Um, essentially, that formed my relationship with money back then. I was pretty much, I had a phobia of spending money. I was so petrified of spending money that even seeing a counter where, they, where you go and pay, let's say a McDonald's counter, that would, that would scare me. I was petrified. Um, I think it was mainly due to, you know, my upbringing, where my family was poor and I felt so guilty that if I spent any money, it was eating into the family, family account. But my parents and in particularly my mum pushed, well, push is not the right word. They put everything into my education. So I had a tough childhood, not only financially, but I wasn't allowed to hang out with any of my friends after school. Maybe once in a while as a treat, but. Every time I came home, my mom would sit with me for hours each day after school to do the homework with me. If I finished my homework, that she would then set me hours of homework herself each day. When I was growing up in China, even as a first or second grader, we would do three to six hours of homework a night. So as a five or six year old, doing a whole evening of homework is very normal. So my parents, especially my mom, who was a teacher, thought it was extremely unusual that I barely had any homework when I moved to New Zealand or Australia. So she just set the homework for me. So I come back from school, four or five o'clock, have a bit of a snack, study for one or two hours, have dinner and then study for another three hours or so. And this was every day of my life until I finished um, high school. And I mean, I guess at that time, as with any immigrant, especially someone with just one child, that is the pressure therein as well, that you want your child to succeed. And in an immigrant family... You want your child to succeed against all odds, you know, in a country that didn't necessarily welcome them, and it's, there are definitely some barriers that's going to prevent you from doing as well. So, my parents were also always of the view that there are going to be certain things that going to be against you just because you're not a native of Australia. You're not um you're not white essentially, so. That's that's fine. That's just the baseline. So you have to do study twice as hard. You have to work twice as much to get to the same point, point. and that's that's fine because that's just how it is. So that's how my my parents taught me as as immigrants. You just got to put in that extra yard, and so that of that's that really fixed that point into my head. New Zealand was interesting for us. My dad was uh, we are quite mobile. We we're quite a nomad family. I moved. We moved house every year for that entire time. So from year nine, so from when I was nine to when I was 15, we moved to a different school every year. So personally, I was never able to establish a friendship group, which was tricky because I didn't speak much English to begin with. Um, But it did make me make friends very quickly. So eventually, after a few years, I became very good at making friends. I was very quick to get to know people, But also, I knew I didn't have to – well, I guess with self-defense, I knew I can't be too attached to anyone because I was going to lose them the next year anyway. So it was easy come, easy go situation. I was very good at making connections, but I was almost too scared to make deep connections as a child because next year I'm moving on. So in hindsight, it was a tough childhood. I, I don't think I really had a proper childhood per se. I never really played with any other kids. I never really got to hang out with anyone. Um, I just studied. I didn't really speak any language when I came to I came to New Zealand. And I didn't really have any money. And I just spent my spare time doing homework and hanging out with my parents. So it was a, I guess it was a tough time. But at the time, you just dealt with it. It felt very normal. That was just, you know, how I was. And I didn't think it was any different. Um, in hindsight, knowing what you know, most other people have gone through was actually a pretty strange childhood. And I guess that really shaped who I am later on. I mean, I'm surprised I'm as normal as I, I guess normal was a relative term, but my wife always says you have, despite how, how eccentric you are, you, given your childhood, you actually turned out to be somewhat normal. So I guess I'm happy with that.
2: Interesting story. And, and, and thanks for sharing that with the audience. There's very raw, raw information there, a lot, lot to sort of break down and digest. And and I think if you're listening in to Tony's story, I think there's several hundred maybe listening in can potentially relate to aspects of that coming here as a uh, first-generation immigrant. I, I You know, when, when Tony says, you know, you come to a new country, you don't really have that sense of belonging. And that's just the truth. I mean, i had the same sort of I suppose feelings when when we came to Australia and and uh, I grew up in Adelaide, great city, clean city. I I had I thought I had a pretty good childhood, but there's always this sort of sense that you don't belong because you know we we look different, we probably behave different. I think growing up in the 80s and 90s in Australia was very different to kids' experiences growing up today. That's not to say that kids don't have a tough time today, but uh, I'm, I'm sure they do, but it was a slightly different era. And it was very, you know, first generation immigration um, into New Zealand and Australia was, uh, you know, still in its kind of, I suppose, infancy, although we are a country of immigrants when you think about it. We'll just, we'll just take a quick break. And when we come back, I just want to pick Tony's brain about his investing philosophy and his specific views on super. We'll be right back.
0: If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help.
2: Chen here, Dr. Tony Chen, who's a consultant radiologist in the state of Victoria in Melbourne, um, who also runs a travel Facebook group for uh, medical doctors. I just want to pick his brain about investing. So, Tony, what is your investing philosophy? And and perhaps just for the non medical people that are listening in, as a consultant radiologist, is there much of a difference in terms of your income in the public versus private? Uh, and then perhaps talk a little bit about your own sort of investing philosophy. So that, because c- I think people don't understand, you know, what sort of money is involved uh, for consultant radiologists within the public system versus a private system. Maybe talk a
1: bit about that and also how you structure your investments. Okay. So radiology is an interesting one. So I would say public versus private, that you're probably going to be better off financially in public but it depends. It depends on a lot of factors. But for public, the biggest difference is straight up is a full-time public job is four days. So immediately you are working, you have one less day, you have a three-day weekend in public. And if you want to use that extra day to do another day in private, you totally can. And being in mind that public job usually also has a um, academic day as well, either one or one or four night or two or four nights. So that's that's also going to change things as well. So that's that's going to be a big difference. In terms of the actual pay, the pay for public is variable depending on the hospital. So radiologists don't follow the EBA um, of everyone else. We Each hospital has its own little mini- miniature EBA that the uh, radiologists get together and negotiate. So everyone is on a different um, salary. So... Let's say a pretty stock standard radiologist salary in a public hospital might be, let's say, 500, 550, that kind of range per year. Um, but potentially, um, some hospitals in public, I've heard, you know, could be up to 750 plus, depending on how they structure it. Some, some public hospitals have a private component, they can push your wage up. So it's going to be different depending where you go. And in the private system, it's the, the wages are fairly similar. So despite the fact that private, you work five days. So immediately, for a lot of people, their goal is trying to get into a public job. And for public, you obviously got other benefits of uh, salary packaging. Uh, you also have non-service leave and sabbatical that you may not get in a private system. So overall, public job is much more sought after um, from a juice point of view, because you'll pay the extra money you get isn't actually less, potentially could be more. However, there's a roof for the public system. For private, there is no roof. You can negotiate, and the negotiation often depends on, it depends on a few factors. The top factor will probably be who you are and where you are, so what kind of subspecialty you have. So for me, I do nuclear medicine, which is a... Uh, Two-year extra study I did on top of radiology, and that is uh, probably a more uncommon subspecialty, and probably more sought after. So I can I have slightly more power than let's say someone who doesn't have nuclear medicine to negotiate for different terms. And also, if you go to a regional town that has less. Obviously, you've got a less pool of doctors to choose from. That's going to increase your bargaining power as well. So for me, I'm in Geelong. That's um, a regional town in Victoria. Um, this will slightly increase my bargaining power. Um, the further north you go in Australia, generally the better pay they are as well. Usually because of the same situation, the further north you are, there's just less doctors. So you're generally going to have um, less people to compete with and therefore more bargaining, bargaining power. Uh, I think that's the differences in public and private, and roughly how much they earn. But in private, if you're reporting a lot of scans, you know you're billing huge numbers. As you can, if you really want to, you're doing. You know, if you're a rapid reporter, you can use that number and then say to the um, company and say, "Hey, look how much I'm reporting. You should give me a higher percentage, or you know, give me a larger number to." take into account the amount of work I'm doing. So they are there are going to be radiologists who are definitely you know over the seven figures mark just because they do more. So those are the two main types of radiologists. But they they are employees. Um, a third type of radiologist would be a business owner. So someone who's a partner in a clinic. So they are in a completely different situation where they own the machines and they have the relationships with the referrers to try and get the scans and and then they make their money after expenses, just like any other businesses. That would totally depend on how well you're doing, but radiology is such a booming uh, field that that everyone's trying to get a scan. It's very, you have to be doing something really wrong to not be making money. So uh, most um, partners make good money, uh, very good money, but also they work harder and they have to deal with, obviously, the business side of things. Um, at the moment, that's just not me. I, I don't have the brain power or the energy for that. But it is something a lot of realologists do looking to um, owning, um, owning their own business so they're not held down by anyone else. But you are somewhat trapped in your own business where you know, it's harder to leave and it's definitely harder to take leave at times.
2: So so second question is about investing, right? So we're talking figures here of anywhere between sort of you know four hundred to eight hundred thousand dollars, maybe over seven figures if you're a practice owner. So how how does that sort of you know fit in with your you know, without having to disclose your income, but how do you structure your investments then? Because, you know, for, for non medics, I mean that's that's a huge sum of money. And for, you know, proceduralists, that's probably, you know, um, not too bad. For non procedurists, that's also a very, very good income. So, how does that help you structure your finances? Are you, you know, very much a passive investor, active investor, traditional investor, or do you do some alternative stuff on the side? So, my wife is the
1: investor of our family. She's been an investor since she was a child. Her parents uh, educated her quite young, and I was the opposite. My parents weren't really interested in that. They were more interested in getting good grades at school and then getting using the grades to get a good job, such as medicine, and then using your job to make money. They, my parents are not fantastic with money. If So they're they classic. I mean, what's the mentality, isn't it? It's like if you have some money, they will tend to spend it. Mm-hmm. And they didn't really understand the difference between assets and liability. They didn't really understand there are certain things you buy to make you more money and there's certain things that are increasing value. Everything was just something that you spend and then that's something that you use. So the relationship for them with money is very different. Well, for my wife, she grew up in the situation where she was taught that you can use your money to buy things such as liabilities that don't make you any money or you can save some money up or invest it for long-term gain. And that's something I was just never taught. And my wife over the last 10 years, she's the one that's really pushed this and really taught me that. So, um, I, if I, I honestly, if I didn't meet her, I don't think I'll be investing at all. I think I would be suffering from lifestyle creep greatly because the difference between a red, registrar um, salary and a consultant salary is pretty great. And if I didn't have my wife, I reckon I would be spending every single cent of that extra money I earned on just rubbish. My wife's investment philosophy, or our investment philosophy, is fairly. Relatively low risk, so I mean usual stuff. Usual stuff that you talk about. Um, we've got real estate, um, just some shares, ETFs, some couple individual shares, and um, dabbling Wing, some angel investment that um, uh, B is doing. But generally, most of our money is on fairly low risk, long term, um, you know, situation. Not really like much crypto nothing too extravagant, nothing that requires a lot of work. We have, a, um, I think, with our uh, share market exposure, we just have, I think, every week if some portion of money goes in. So it's just um, all automated, so we don't really have to do much. don't think, I mean, my wife do do some research, but I don't think either of us just has the time or the inclination to do a huge amount of research to be confident in, you know, Individual shares or very specific investment—that's just not not what we're about. I think it's better off for me to be better at my job, to increase my earning potential, than maybe doing something that you know that would require a lot of extra effort before who knows how much gain. Because we and we know we're not super passionate about it, and we just don't have the time. So yes, it's slow and steady, relatively low risk kind of things. You know, mildly diversified. Nothing, nothing fancy. We're not looking to be super rich. That's not our goal. I mean, I didn't come from a rich family, and I just told you that. My wife was, you know, low middle class at best. So money to us is just a means to an end. We just want a roof over our heads, some good food, good experiences. Um, For me, the investment is more about a, a defense strategy. And it's more about exchanging that money for time down the track and also time right now. So I'm not really, I mean, despite the fact, we're gonna get into this later, despite the fact I love staying at fancy hotels and flying business class, that's not the goal here. That's just the cream on top. Um, The goal is to just, you know, have the basics, pay off my mortgage and exchange money for time. That's probably my financial philosophy.
2: Right. So staying staying on that investing theme and superannuation. I mean, you you have very strong views on uh, superannuation, and for people that are not part of that Facebook group, Tony's not a great fan of superannuation. Dare I say? And we we have you know had robust arguments and discussion points online. You you've, you know you basically say that super is not particularly useful and it's not something that you're focused on. Pretty strong statements, which will, you know, throw a lot of listeners off because I'm a great fan of super. I'm on the other spectrum. I think it's a great tax effective retirement investment vehicle. Uh, I maximize my super and I I put money into it. Can you just tell us why you don't like super and um, what's your sort of view on it for the rest of the audience and what do you do with your own super then, in terms of investing? Is most of your investments
1: outside of super? Uh, I think the specific wording <laughs> that I use is superannuation is a scam. <laughs> yes, uh, I think that's just that's look. I'm just trolling. I'm just I'm just trying to get a rise out of people for <laughs> so I think it's funny. I'm not a big fan of super for my own personal circumstance. Um, I, I will explain that, and I think I explained it in that investment group as well. But it doesn't mean it's not a great system. I think it's a very, Australia, when they implemented super, I think that's a masterstroke. Most countries should have super. As you know, I also lived in New Zealand. They have this dodgy half-art super that is just not good enough. And I don't know how they're going to support everyone over there. It's, um, and everyone in New Zealand gets pen, uh, gets a pension. It doesn't, they not, it's not means tested. So. I don't know what their long-term goal there is there. So (laughs) there's no barely any super, and then everyone gets pension. So Australia has a much better, more sustainable retirement plan for its people. So I, I think long for the community, it's it's great, but for me, it just doesn't doesn't work with my principle of I just don't agree that younger poorer people should fund older richer people, and that includes myself. So I don't think. I should give money to my future self. So, so I'm in my late 30s now. So let's say, for argument's sake, to make this more extreme, let's say I'm 25. I'm much younger, it, just at the start of my career, and I'm making, I don't know. I think when I was 25, first year of internship, I made fifty thousand dollars. That was like base salary, and a portion of that was going to super. So I didn't have any other money at the time. Nothing. Like it, it was, I had a hex debt. And this $50,000 for the first year that was taxed a little bit and portion went into the super. So basically, me as a 25-year-old with nothing, no assets, just debt, is going to give a few thousand dollars to the 65-year-old me that, if everything goes right, will be a multi-millionaire with probably a few, you know, a couple of big houses, presumably, with a Good amount of assets and cash, like that doesn't that makes no sense to me. Why would a younger version of myself who was poor give money to an older version of myself who's rich? It's it's going the wrong direction. So if anything, I think I made this analogy in, in a story I wrote. If there was a time machine, I would ask the opposite. I would ask the richer version of myself to give money to the poorer version of myself. That would make more sense and. As you know, when you're younger, you're healthier, you've got more time, you've got more generally mental capacity to enjoy life and do things with that money. A $5,000 to a 25-year-old is completely different to $5,000 to a 65-year-old. And you know, when I was younger, I went to Europe when I was, you know, 24 or 23. I didn't need that much money to be happy and there were some of the best experiences of my life with just a very small amount of money and for a 50 60 70 year old the, the amount of money required to get the same amount of happiness and excitement it's just not going to be the same so that amount of money is not going to be worth as much when you're older so there's two two aspects for me here i don't think younger poorer version of myself should give to a richer older version and also i don't think the same amount of money is worth as much when you're older just because you're going to be less healthy you're going to have less time and you're just not mentally not going to be as you know as sprightly as you are when you're you know in your younger days and the biggest thing i have with super is the lack of liquidity so when you're putting money into it, especially when you're young, you're trapping that money there for thirty plus years. That just makes no sense to me. And you wouldn't do that normally, would you? Like, if I said I will uh, put your money into a box that you can't open for thirty years to fund your retirement without any benefit, you wouldn't do that. The only reason you would do that is because you're getting a tax saving, and the tax saving is what fifteen percent. Like, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. There'd be something around that. And to me personally, that 15% or 20% or however it is for money to be locked up for that long, that's just not enough of a incentive for me. That, that has to be significantly bigger. It has to be more than 50% for me personally. So for me, all of these factors just doesn't make sense to me from a logical, general principle kind of view. But I think it doesn't make sense to me uh, on a financial level, because I'm quite fortunate. I'm fortunate that I'm young relatively. I'm fortunate I have a really good job that pays well. and I am fortunate that if things generally don't go completely wrong, I will most likely do okay when I retire. So I don't really need that money. So that this doesn't apply for you know a lot of other people. Um, if you were in the lower socioeconomic scale like, you know, my parents were, you do need that super to help you retire because who knows if you're going to have a house paid off when you retire. Um, who knows if you, you know, if you actually have enough money to retire or you know, live a lifestyle. That's not no way guaranteed. Um, but for me, I'm unlikely to be that person and i have a lot of defence mechanisms with insurances and in lots of investment outside of super to make sure that doesn't happen to me so i just personally for me who's relatively young and has a good job i just don't see that as a you know a good investment
2: so i mean so just to just to reiterate what you're saying is you just don't agree with the principle of locking up your funds even though you're getting a good tax break i mean the 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 concept of investing is 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 okay you're fine with that the concept of superannuation scheme of investing for your retirement no problems there but the two issues are well the main issue is essentially once it goes in it's very hard to get out and therefore money for you is worth more than money for you later on and of course, like you said, you you come from a position of you know you know decent income, um, significant income. So for the average person who you know doesn't have a high income, you know super may be the only thing mm. that they can rely on when it comes to their retirement. So that's that's fair enough. That we'll call that a truce. So that's a good segue in ending part one of this episode. In part two, which is going to be a little bit shorter, but I think it's worth discussing about Tony's travel uh, aspect of his life. So I really want to touch on that. So stay tuned for part two coming up. So my name is Dev Rago. This is My Melanie Money Professional. Um, And if you want to leave a five-star rating, don't hesitate to leave a five-star rating on any of the podcasting platforms that you may be using. Apple Podcasts is the main one. And don't forget to contact me via Twitter or on Facebook. And until next time, we have Dr Tony Chen uh, in part two about his life and his travel hacks. Please stay
0: safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast.